This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. We will be back with new episodes in the new year. Until then, please enjoy this best of featuring ER Fightmaster, Kiko Hughes, and Eleanor Medhurst. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. Here's another thing that is interesting to me about your coupledom, um, is the height discrepancy, because I am also currently in a, in a like height discrepancy uh, co-star couple on my show. She How tall races, are you? I'm 5'4". She's 5'10 or 11. Oh, my God. Yeah. She's tall. (laughs) And I'm a little guy. Wow. I don't think I realized you were a little guy. I'm a little guy. (laughs) 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 I'm a little guy. Yeah. I'm not a little guy. Yeah. Because you're like what? What are you? I'm six foot one. I was going to say you're 5'11". But yes, you're 6'1". Okay. Yeah. And then... Katarina is 5'4". Yeah. Yeah. It's not so different. It's yeah. not so different. Um, we we do we do have her. Does she get up on the little box? She gets up on the little box. <laughs> I love it. I love when when they have to get up on the little box. I, I, I mean, for mine, sometimes they just have it's like it's like Grace will have to be like leaning against the wall in like a significant way. Yeah, or like something really funny, or like you know if if it's if we're not in the exact same shot, you don't always mm-hmm. notice, but then we will be sometimes. And it's very funny. And here's why I think this is, it's interesting to talk about is because like, there's, because of the queerness of all of it, uh-huh. like, because we don't know how queer, I mean, it's, yes, it's, you know, even Grace has been doing this forever, but like, we still don't have every type of representation on TV. And so like the stuff that gets through first is like, I don't know. Yeah. Same height, long hair, like uh-huh, two uh-huh. cis long haired, same heights, you know, like yes. that's what will get through first or whatever. The L word. Yeah. The whole L word. The whole L word. Exactly. Yeah. And so now we're like at this next iteration of what else could things look like? And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, how, does it's that... very, it feels romantic to me. Like I, I like seeing, I like it because it feels so in a way that I think is actually subversive it is the way that we have shot hetero couples for so long. Like the camera is pointing up at me, the camera's pointing down at her. And we're kind of, it's kind of taking out that idea that 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 queer couples can't have that kind of romance. Like you're mm-hmm. right. They always do the in queer pairings. I feel like the the way to that has it's been safe in hetero minds is to be like, that well, they're same people, same parts. They should look the same. And it's just like, well, more often than not, that's not actually what queer couples are doing. So it feels good to be like her big, massive boyfriend in a queer way. <laughs> and her, you know what I mean? And be- also because she's more powerful than me on the show. Right. Like she is, she is like, she is smarter, honestly, to God in real life and more established in real life and, and, and in the show. And so there's, even the size difference of me being the big, big looming boyfriend and her being this powerful little neurosurgeon, I think is subversive. Like all of it is very like pleasing and romantic to me. Well, that's interesting. I mean, the other thing I guess I'd add to that is um, because, because she's the established character. Mm -hmm. You're, you were brought always when somebody is the established character and then somebody's being brought on They're not always, but most often they're being brought on as like the object of mm-hmm. that person's affection. Like, like you're the object, I'm the object as, and because we're, because we're going to be looking through Amelia, Shep- Amelia Shepard's eyes. Cause like mm-hmm. that's who we're familiar with. Right. Um, and that to me is also interesting in like where we are, I guess. And one reason I was so excited to talk to you because I don't feel like people that are in our space in the gender spectrum mm-hmm. have gotten to be the object mm-hmm. of very often. I feel like, you know, the objectifier or like the, 
the lo- like the love the 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 lover like but mm-hmm. not the you know the chaser or whatever but not necessarily the object and it's yes. been very fucking wild to have that experience on set because it makes me realize like how I don't even think about myself that way and like how I had to do some like growth like personal growth because I was acting things that I was like oh I don't let myself feel this or like I don't expect this from people I expect to be the person in pursuit which is like based on some fucked stuff I know exactly what you mean jackets I own yes yeah (laughs) I do know what you mean there there is a well, and I feel like last season, season 18, I feel like they did a really good job. It, it's it's a lighting difference um, most of the time. So I feel like when they introduce a love interest to one of these established characters, they light you in these really beautiful ways because they are showing, they ha- they have to show the audience why you are actually deserving of this established characters like love and affection. And that is kind of like, it's like nice to see yourself in that way. It's like nice to just be like lit in this like golden light and be seen through love goggles. Cause I do feel like, you know, maybe for lack of better terms in this moment, but like, anything mask of center you you don't get that kind of like pretty attention all the time like you're right you are the pursuer and so it is nice to just be treated like in kind of in kind of a beautiful powerful way like objectified yes in in a way that I don't think you're right like I I I, I felt like the side character in a lot of ways on other things and on this I really felt like this object of love I mean, I, that's why I use the word object too, is like, I don't, I don't think in this case it's negative because Mm-mm. I have been objectified my whole life in a, like, you know, heteronormative, like patriarchal, like, of course I've been mm-hmm. objectified. I mean, I don't, there was a time also when I didn't like present this way. And, um, I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't think I was necessarily nailing woman but (laughs) some men seemed to think that that was fine um and and not that they couldn't but I just mean like that's not who I was I was I've gotten the only times I've been objectified I didn't want to be there we go that's the easiest I completely know exactly what you mean I literally (laughs) it happened to me the other day and I was like enough away with you like stop you're not reading any signals at all like please I've got overalls on get out I literally was like getting ready to paint my apartment and like in work mode, getting ready to paint my apartment. Like there's not a butcher person on the planet than me when I'm like ready to get a task done. I got flirted with and was like (laughs) repulsed by it. And I was like, oh, I forgot (laughs) actually what this felt like to be flirted with by a man, which is actually, it's not flirting. It's more like, I think you pretty, even though you look queer, I will turn you out, little girly. And it's like, no, I actually don't like that energy at all. So, so please feels, leave me alone. That feels yeah. pretty unsafe to me, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it feel, and it's also just feels like, I think the way I, f- I feel so many different ways. One is like, wait, does this person not know? And what's going to happen when they find out? And I'm yes. like, am I like an actual danger? Mm-hmm. Or it's like, oh, this person knows. And now what I like, am I going to be a dickhead or like, you know, it's just, it's just so much pressure. So anyway, to be in a situation where it's like the type of person that I would want to see me that way. Yeah. Um, and to realize that like, I've just been limiting myself or, or like, not, it's not all on me. It's fucking culture, man. But, mm-hmm. um, look, I guess what I'm saying is babies could love boys too. You know what I mean? <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is it's fun to be boyfriend, but hot, yeah, it's it, fun in to hot be way. Boyfriend. Yeah, yeah it's, especially I, you know, that show is famous for like, I think it's famous for the female perspective in such a great iconic way. You know, the whole show is through Meredith Grey's eyes and has been for so long. And so all of the love interests have been shot in this way of like, mm-hmm. you know, for a mostly female or queer audience like here's this beaut the next beautiful thing you get to look at now i will say if you pay attention in like a, a like in an art way to the way that it it progresses over the course of time i feel like the the boyfriends to leads they start to lose lighting and so and and in this way that i think is actually purposeful where it's like we want to um after we've introduced you as the object of love, now we want to focus on how you make your lead glow 
Mm-hmm. And so as seasons go on, we have to refocus our eyes on the lead to be like, because then if we also need to be, we we are like attuning ourselves to the lead. So if the lead then starts get getting lit darkly while we're with the boyfriend, we know the boyfriend's on his way out. If the lead is still set golden while the boyfriend is with you, then then the relationship is good for her. You know what I mean? It's it's like training the audience to be attuned to who actually matters, which is the woman that you are serving when you are the hired boyfriend gun. <gasps> horny stuff. Really horny stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Part of the book, as I said a little earlier, was sort of figuring out who I was as a Japanese American and where I fit into that. And... I think that is true for a lot of people, especially people who didn't grow up in historically Japanese neighborhoods, um, who, who feel that distance. And that is by design. The thing that I really come to realize is that the camps weren't just about removing people from their homes. It also scattered the entire community across the country because so many people left camp early in order to leave camp earlier than they closed in 1945. You had to go east or you had to go away from the West Coast, which is where historic Japan towns were. Um, and so that disillusion of community was, you know, such a, a blow to the fabric of, you know, the, the culture. Um, and and I think that is one of the main things that we are all as you know, fourth generation trying to reconnect and find each other in that way um, and rebuild these communities, maybe not in a physical space, but, you know certainly online. And um, wow. yeah, so I, it, that was really powerful to see a lot of people in my generation feel that distance and feel like, okay, now we can bridge these gaps and bring these communities back together. Yeah. I was saying before we started recording, and I don't think I said this after we started recording that my wife, my wife, Katie is, is your generation. Yeah. And um, you know, she was so, I like found your book first I don't even remember how. And when I was like, um, you have to read this. And I think it even took her like a minute to kind of be, get to that place where she wanted to, because I think she was nervous about the, just how emotional it would be. Mm-hmm. And I think it was really emotional for her. And, you know, so I got to s- see some of what you're talking about in my own bed. Uh, Cause <laughs> she was reading it at night. <laughs> um, but also to your point, a cu- uh, earlier this summer, we went up to San Francisco and stayed in Japantown in San Francisco, and we're reading about the history there. And, and that's a good example of what you're talking about in that before this happened, the, si- the, the geographical size of Japantown was, it was like 30 blocks or something like that. And now it's like, it's like six or something like that. There's It's a really marked difference yeah. um, simply because like, you know, folks were, yeah, forced apart, not, not, not just the incarceration, but then also like landlords and, and folks, you know, taking over property and just, and just a desire to sort of like dissolve the solidity of that community. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it's still there, but it's a very different version than what it used to be. Yeah. And it's so it's so interesting. I feel like the, the Japanese American experience is a very strange one because of the, you know, subsequent like fetishization of Japanese culture that came after. Um that it, it's very it, it 
puts people in a very weird position. I don't know if Katie's ever talked about this, but yes, for sure. But yeah. but please tell me more about what you mean. I I I mean I I don't want to assume, but yes, I I do think yeah. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you know, growing up, anime was hugely popular. It was mm-hmm. starting to get hugely popular in in America, and people would always ask me, you know, why don't you speak Japanese? Oh, you don't speak Japanese, and this. And I never knew what to say to that. Sorry, I don't speak Japanese. But, you know, as I grew older and especially researching for displacement, I realized just what a weird question that is, like what my grandmother would have thought of that question because she made the conscious choice not to teach her children Japanese. Yes. And like, and now I'm like, why didn't I get to learn Japanese? (laughs) It's like this very weird flip. And I feel like you see that in a lot of Japan towns specifically you see that embodied in like physical ways because you know whereas before you know the, the you know you got to have this big culture and like Japanese American culture specifically I feel like a lot of Japan towns if they exist anymore um you know kind of have to lean into that you know almost fetishization of Japanese culture in a way that makes I don't know it, to me it always felt kind of like, I don't, I don't relate to that, I guess. Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely, you know, definitely Katie and I have talked about, I mean, many times. So, like, I'm, again, I'm the same generation American that she is. Yeah. Zero people ask me if I can speak Italian. Um, <laughs> also, you know, of course, of course, this is, you know, Italy and Japan, they were kind of, um, on the same side, <laughs> they were boys. Yeah, they were both. They were boys, them. you know. Yeah. And so, and we, and we know that Italian Americans, who like, you know, the Sopranos would tell you faced uh, obstacles in coming to the United States. Like nobody was incarcerated. This is yeah, very few. you know. I think there were there was a handful. Yeah, but. there were a few. There were a few. Got it. Yeah. Into that. Well, but I anyway. think if they were they were like openly pro Mussolini, I think then maybe. But sure, okay. <laughs> it took a well, lot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, openly that that that's a different yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a different so like the way that the way that race lines up with this. Also I just think in terms of you're talking about the fetish fetishization it's you know the way that that other cultures have like mixed into American culture. I mean Italian American culture is like pizza. Like it's so it's so it's like so I mean yes we have little Italy but it's just I think it's so rote, you know? I think I think people really think of it as rote versus I think people generally have accepted, you know, a lot of Asian American culture and then specifically Japanese American culture as if it's still very far removed from the American experience. Right. Yeah. Italian American culture is pizza. (laughs) Japanese American culture is like still like a a further away. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the long history of Orientalism and how it works. You know, I mean, people have been, it's wild. People have been fetishizing East Asian cultures for, you know, since uh, Van Gogh and like the Impressionism period. Like that was hugely influenced by a lot of like East Asian art and everything. And people would like dress in kimonos. Yeah, it's wild. There's a lot of Impressionist paintings of like white ladies in kimonos and like <laughs> it's, it's. Oh, my God. Yeah, really? it's been going on forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, wow yeah this sort of back and forth um but yeah it does it does it, it is wild because yeah people would ask that like oh i love anime it's like i'm more japanese than you because i speak some japanese because i watch anime and and being older and being like you know why i don't speak japanese it's, it's like yeah maybe because of your grandparents but <laughs> right so yeah yeah I don't know. It's a weird. I still have a lot of trouble articulating that specific feeling. Like I didn't watch anime when I was growing up because it made me feel weird, and I couldn't. I still have a hard time explaining why because I missed out on a lot of good stuff. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to take this even one step further, and you can totally say that you don't want to answer this question. But you know, there's a there's a big intersection here with queerness, also that I feel like you know, in terms of lesbian identity, queer identity being fetishized. Um, Asian women being fetishized, Japanese American culture being fetishized. It's like a, it's like a <laughs> big 
giant stack yeah, of different yeah. things that we fetish, <laughs> that we fetishize. And I'm just curious if if you could speak to that for a second, or if that's or if that's been part of your experience at all. Because I certainly know that, like, yeah, each of those things are something that, like, I can imagine a a, a stereotypical white guy in a basement googling in a horrifying way. <laughs> And when that's your actual identity, you know, and it collides with things other people are putting on you, it's, you know, it's a lot to, I don't have to tell you, but I'm just curious. No, absolutely. Um, And yeah, I mean, in a lot of different ways that comes up, like I, I was super late in figuring out like my sexuality. And part of that I realize now as an adult is because I was so focused on figuring out my race, like what race am I? (laughs) <laughs> then I was like, I'll deal with everything else later. <laughs> I kind of have a brain where I'm like, if I'm like, I can't work on three things at once. I have to finish a project first. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 So, for sure. <laughs> yeah. In that way, it kind of intersected. But, um, but yeah, like, yeah, definitely the, and, and it comes up a lot over and over again, you know, the, the sort of rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and specifically, like, yeah, you know, Asian women, Asian sex workers, Asian women who may be perceived as sex workers, and all of that sort of complicated intersection of the ways that these, like, fetishization and and even the most tame versions of them um, compound and create harm along the way. Um, it, it's, it is terrifying to watch. And, but this is, on a more on a brighter note, this is tangentially related, but I did want to make sure that I brought it up because it, it was hugely important to me. Um, was uh, I always want to talk about Jira Onuma, who was the only docu well, the best documented um, gay man in camp, um, and he, you know, there's photographs of him with his boyfriend in camp, and it is like finding that was incredible for me. <laughs> like it, it absolutely sort of shook my world. Um, and uh, I want to shout out to oh, um, Tina Takamoto, um, who did an, a, a series of essays and also uh, wrote for Den Show about Jiro's experience, mm. um, has done such incredible work. Uh, Looking for Jiro um, is, is the sort of I think that the title of it and it explores sort of like what it means for people to see themselves in that position um, and think about queerness in camp was, was really interesting. Um, I, I feel like we just saw, I don't think I'm making this up. I think it was him. I, Cause we were Katie and I, when we were in San Francisco, we went to the like, um, in the Castro, there's some like tiny museum where they have the original pride flag. Oh, and it's wow. truly like that's most of what the museum is in terms of like, it's just like in the center, there's it's like, there's the flag. Look at yeah. it. But um, so I think you could almost miss that they actually have an, a lot of really cool other like very small and specific like artifacts and um little stories around it's I mean it's the t- it is truly the tiniest place you've ever been in your entire life but I think Jiro was was in there there were there were and there were a couple other just like I mean not a couple there's probably like 30 little moments of like queer history that yeah. were unexpected like here's us like this is the the bar that existed in San Francisco in this era or whatever it is and and I will say um you know, it does, it always impacts me a lot. It makes me have perpetual goosebumps just to remember that, like, we've always been here and see exactly. all the the moments that, like, every history has been our history. And, the you know, it relates so well because, you know, this process of later generations having to do the work to rediscover that history is, you know, that's right. such an overlap between, you know, the queer experience and, you know, Japanese-American experience is, like, you know, this history isn't given to us. We have to seek it. <laughs> oh, that's so true. Yeah. Yes. So do you feel having had this experience and like, you know, stepped through all of this, 
Do you have a feeling personally of greater peace? Do you have a feeling of like more frustration? I mean, what, how does it feel knowing everything you know now and having done that research for a year? Is it, where are you with that? Yeah, it's there. It's both, definitely both because uh, on a personal level and on a community level, I, I figured out sort of what it meant to be Japanese American to me um, in the process of making this book. And I realized, you know, it took me longer than it probably should have, but uh, the big realization for me was the huge gulf between the being Japanese American and being Japanese. And the reason that it took me so long to realize the difference is because everyone I met didn't know that difference. <laughs> and so the sort of expectations were, you should speak Japanese, you should watch these anime, and you should uh, wear a kimono and go to Bonadori. Um, and sometimes I did, but <laughs> but the, the thing for me was Japanese American culture is so much more rooted in, in activism. And, and that made me very proud um, and made me realize sort of where I fit in there. And like the legacy of, you know, civil rights work and agitating and really bringing up these hard issues, um, you know, made me realize sort of that part of Japanese American culture is something to be very cherished um, and, you know, well, to be continued. Um, yeah. On the other hand, part of the experience of researching for the book um, was how little we ever know about a bad situation because, you know, digging into the camp and realizing all these stories that don't get told, maybe they're isolated incidents, but things that stuck with me, like the kids who, you know, their father was a widower and he was taken by the FBI um, right after Pearl Harbor. Um, and the FBI didn't bother to check if there was another parent in the house. So these kids came home to an empty house, no adults. And they had, no, they were 12. They had no idea what to do. Um, things like that, things like kids who were adopted by white families um, and didn't even know they were Japanese American until the government came and took them to a camp. Um, you know, these sort of isolated stories of just pure horror um, that you don't hear about. And then it makes you realize every other terrible thing that has been done in this country that we know about is a pacified version of what actually happened. There are layers to it that we can't even access. And sort of that realization is, is what haunts me. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. So there's both. <laughs> right. I, that's, that's such a, you know, I'll go back to the, the, the thing I was saying about like, now I live in California. So like this history is more present for me, right? Like the, there's a, um, there's like a big like food festival called the 626 Night Market that happens Ooh, nice. here. And it also happens in like San Francisco. And it's um it happens here in LA at or I mean technically it's like in Arcadia, um, which has a, a really big Chinese American population. And this 626 night market is like every type of Asian food, like like island and like it's it's just like every type of Asian food and um, most people that are there are Asian American folks. And I just say this to say that like, when we were going to the Santa Indian racetrack to go there, Katie was like, I was telling, you know, she's telling one of her friends that we were going to this. And he said that this is where his family was held before they were this racetrack. Yeah. Is there are like stalls and this is where folks were held like as a middle place before the assembly to, center yeah yes that's the right word for it before going to the incarceration camps so we're like driving in you know and it's just everything all at once it's like this celebration of culture with many different types of cultures with that history and like you're saying i mean i just happened to know about that because of like who's <laughs> in my car and who she talked to and where i happen to live um it's a humbling thing that you're saying, you know, it's a, it's a yeah, humbling thing. We'll only ever know sort of the surface of whatever happens. And that is terrifying, but should be, I guess, motivating to, to always want to learn more, to never take things at face value, I guess. Yeah. <laughs>
I basically, I have a degree in fashion history um, and a master's in history of design and material culture. Wow. And while I was doing those studies initially, I sort of realized that there wasn't much out there on lesbian fashion history or queer fashion history in general, but especially lesbian fashion history and why like clothing is really important within lesbian history um, and lesbian self-expression historically. Um, So yeah, I really, I realized that I wanted to look into this more. And as I started searching and researching lesbian fashion history in all sort of ways and locations and contexts, I realized that that was something I wanted to continue even more. Um, So I started my blog, Dressing Dykes, and um, I just put out articles about things that I'd found and researched. And eventually that formed into other things. Like I've got a TikTok account and an Instagram. And now I do like lecturing and talks and I write articles. Um, So yeah, it just started with a, a passion for this project and people have really resonated with it, I think. So when did that, when did the schooling part happen? How long ago was that? Mm, um, that was, I finished my master's in 2020. Pretty recently. So, yeah. 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 Not, and where does one ago. get, where do you get like a degree in, is it like a fashion school? Where do you get a degree in fashion history? An art school? Yeah. Well, fashion history is like, it's not a topic that is super popular in terms of like universities or academic settings so it's just at a regular university it was at the university of brighton wow um, really but that's yeah. so cool yeah i did yeah you so you just said like a okay all right um but brighton yeah. is queer yes brighton's pretty queer yeah brighton's brighton's a really queer place i'm actually from there i grew up there oh that's interesting which is yeah 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 it's a really it, amazing um, city and it does have a massive queer population. I've never been there for some reason, you know, that will change, I'm sure, hopefully in my life. But can you tell me the queerness that's, I just have heard that it's a queer place. What is it, what's it like in terms of the environment there? It's just, it's really like artistic. There's a lot of students and um, like young queer people like flock there, which really increases the the queer atmosphere, I think. But there's, it's a very open city. There's been like a big pride parade and march and festival there for years and years now, every year. Um, the museum, the local museum puts on queer exhibitions, a couple of which I've helped put together. One's called Queer Looks, which is about LGBTQ, uh, like street style. And one's called Queer the Pier, which is just about queer history in the city. Cause there's a very famous pier in Brighton, which is where the name comes from. Um, and yeah, there's just, there's lots of like queer places, queer spaces, bars. Um, There's recently been a queer bookshop that's opened, but it's just like the general atmosphere of the city. It's a really great place. Wow. I'd really recommend going. Yeah, I I really would love to. Um, When did you first identify that you could like tell or spot queer fashion? Now, of course, I'm going to start by saying that I know there are listeners, you know, I know there are people who don't read queer and I'm not one of those people, but I am married to one of them. Yeah, I mean, but I guess it's just people who dress in a more, almost a way that they're really expressing themselves, how they want to express themselves. And often that doesn't mean that they're queer. But I think even in those cases, it means that they're more likely to be accepting of different kinds of people, maybe. Um So I don't know if it was related to growing up in Brighton and having an interest in queer fashion, in lesbian fashion history, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that it's it's definitely like fed into it, especially when it comes to putting together the exhibition Queer Looks, which opened in 2017 that I mentioned a minute ago. Um, There I was really looking at how different like normal people's self-expression especially in the context of Brighton, feeds into their queer identity. And there's so many different kinds of self-expression included within that, some that are more like visibly obvious and align with um, recognised queer trends or possibly even stereotypes, and some that 
might not be recognized, but are just as important within the community and uh, just as common within the community. Can you describe some of those? Like what yeah, are like what's so, one that's mm, generally recognized and one that's not recognized? I guess something that would be more like recognized as a queer style would be, I guess there's a stereotype of lesbians wearing like dungarees or overalls. We call them dungarees here, uh, overalls in other places. Um, and that's definitely like a stereotype that sometimes rings true and sometimes doesn't. Whereas something like jeans and a t-shirt might also fit very easily into a lesbian or a queer style canon, but could very easily be worn by anyone else, would not be necessarily recognized as being queer. And there's so many other things like that, I guess, as well, when it comes to things like colour. Um, one of the items in this exhibition was a, well, there was a case of three different outfits. One was actually my own outfit. I wear a lot of pink and I can talk about that more if we if we want to. Um, sure. There was another outfit that, 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 I'll come back to it in a second. There was another outfit that was a gay man's outfit that was all blue. Um, and then there was an outfit in the middle that was a non-binary person who had a red jacket that said gender roles are dead on the back. So it was this really interesting um, use of colour and expectations about like, color and gendered roles but flipping them on their head with them being linked to a queer a queer identity um but yeah i can definitely talk more about the color pink i could go on about pink and queer identity for years for years i mean maybe wow let's <laughs> then let's start let's just see what we get to in th on this show yeah talk about pink and yeah. queer identity <laughs> so I just think that pink's a really interesting uh, color because it carries all of these gendered associations, which is something that started, it really started to get going in like the 1950s, where there was this massive push by marketing forces, basically, to market products with the color pink to be able to sell the same product to a woman as they would sell to a man. Oh, but make twice as much money because they're selling two versions of it, um, which is really how this like pink for girls, blue for boys. Like, do you have an example of a product? A pro I can't think of like a a, a specific product uh, off the top of my head, but in the, like even things like cars or um, like household like utility objects. I mean, like I can that. certainly think of those from like. From now, I just didn't know if there was like more a, recently. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm thinking of like razors, yeah. for instance, or like even yeah. Lego sets for children. You know, like obviously that's. But I just, yeah, I was curious if there was like a early days example. I don't know. Tin lunch boxes. Mm -hmm. What did people do in the fifties? <laughs> oh, something like that, definitely. <laughs> yeah. But oh god, I I can't think of one off the top of my head. But I'm sure there are like so many, and the. Yeah, the genders associations of the color pink and then the color blue as an opposite to that have just grown in time, especially with like children's toys, children's clothes. Um, so I think that for a lesbian or for a queer woman, especially someone who has been, who has had these gendered ideals of the color pink sort of put onto them from when they were younger, it's really powerful to claim this color to claim the color pink and say, oh, but I'm not, um, I'm claiming the color pink, but I'm not living up to those gendered stereotypes of being just a wife, mother, not that being a wife and a mother is a bad thing, but that those are the only things you can be, that you have to be submissive and quiet. And the color pink in a very different context, I think can have a lot of important meanings and can say a lot of things without you really even noticing that they're saying them. It's more like subliminal. Yeah. I wore, um, yeah. The most recent time I was on a red carpet, I wore a pink suit, which I was, which was like, oh, wow. First. I also wore one to my wedding. And both times it was definitely something I was like very aware of as a choice. Cause I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, I guess maybe that would be a color that I think other people would assume I would avoid. Um, because of like yeah. what I'm doing gender wise. 
Um, it's like it's like a it's like a dude walking a red carpet in a pink suit. Like it's like very Harry Styles or whatever. Absolutely. There's been like a big moment recently, I think, of celebrities wearing the color pink and then social media really grabbing onto that, mm. which is really interesting. that the most though with like cis dude straight cis dude and maybe also like maybe straight isn't even the right word i don't literally have no idea how harry identifies but like yeah i don't either yeah like but definitely cis and dude there there seems to be like a um assigned male at birth like non-binary celebrities that i see doing like some creativity i don't see as much reflection in the assigned female at birth or like cis women um group of folks i think i think also like trans women are really showing up when i just look at like what we're sort of reflecting back um as like boundary breaking right now i it's the one zone that i don't like totally see a ton of I don't know. Like, I don't see a ton of like, like, like just using the word lesbian. I don't see a ton of like interesting lesbian fashion in the celeb space. Um, Yeah. Do you? Am I missing something? I agree. I I don't think that there is a lot of representation or maybe not, maybe representation is not the right word. I think that there are probably there's probably instances of it happening, but it just doesn't get the same media. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Excitement. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I agree with you. That's, that's what I think it's the media excitement thing and the like public yeah. affirmation that this is cool. I, I feel like I see that yeah. a little bit less, um, which is just interesting to me. I'm not sure why that is that folks are like less, interested or attached i don't know like maybe i've wondered if it's that we still reward we're in like a zone right now of rewarding like gender creativity for like drag queens but not kings you know or like Mm. it just seems like there's a little bit of an interest in like breaking the binary for folks who sometimes present as men um, and like a little yeah. less interest. And I and I don't know why that is. I'm curious about why that is. I, I completely agree with that. I think that's definitely a thing that's happening, especially you mentioned drag queens versus kings. And we've got the massive success of RuPaul's Drag Race, for example. But you don't see, even in the, I think the most recent series of the UK, RuPaul's Drag Race, there was one um, cis woman queen, but who was a drag queen. You don't get that um, celebration, that celebration of drag kings to as much of an extent. But there are loads of drag kings out there doing really incredible work. Um, Yeah, I think that it's not that it's not happening. It's just that it's not being celebrated to as much of an extent. And maybe that's because for decades, it's been acceptable for women to wear trousers and to wear more masculine clothes, even if in the past it definitely wasn't acceptable, whereas there's still more of a taboo for men to wear, or, you know, in simple terms, for men to wear dresses. Um, yeah. So people are, find that more, more interesting or more rule breaking maybe yeah that's really i've also wondered if it's because here's here's a question here's here's a theory that i have so it's like dudes who again in like a sort of celebrity space or like a um public notoriety space dudes who like present as really masculine that can be for women or it could be for men like men could look up to that person or women could be interested in that person. And then dudes who present as as 
you know, when Harry Styles wears a dress, that can still be attractive to women. Women can like think that's mm. hot and sexy in like a confidence way. And then when women wear dresses, then that is something for women to look up to and for men to be attracted to. But when women wear pants, I think as a culture, we don't know who that's for. Like just from a marketing perspective, from like a we're all commodified bodies perspective. Like, I don't think that we have, um, I don't think we put priority on women who might be interested in that or men who might think that that's sexy. So I think it's like a off the edge of the marketing presentation thing also. Like, that's how I think about it. It makes me think of, there was an article um, kind of recently, you might have seen it that said like, um, dressing like a lesbian is the... Oh, yeah. I mean, I literally know the person trend. who wrote this. Yeah, totally. totally. No, really? I mean, yeah. the, the, the article itself was like, was fine. I, re- I remember I right. read, and read it and the article itself was was okay. But it was the headline and yes, everyone exactly. went, oh my yeah. God. Um, because it's like, well, it's not new. It's dressing like a lesbian has always been sexy and powerful, just right. maybe not to the, the same audiences. Right. Um, but I think that what what pe- what got people so annoyed about that was that it was almost it seems like these these lesbian trends or these lesbian ways of dressing in some lesbian or queer spaces um, have not been recognised or celebrated, and suddenly it was like they'd been snatched away and given to another audience. And I don't think that that was what the article was actually doing, but just in the headline, everyone saw it that way. Yes. And that's actually why I wanted to talk to you because, so I, yes, we're all like, this is, this is great. It's all going in the right. Yes. Because (laughs) I think what you're talking about is erasure and something that's Mm. true in my experience, but like, I'm not a historian. Um, Something that's true in my experience is that like, just being somebody who's not who men can't understand how to value if like we value women for their like sex appeal to men and if and if you're somebody that's outside of that um i i just don't know that we've ever had a moment of like really getting square with that like i don't know that there's there there are like like i think about you know maybe Hannah Gadsby or like, you know, there are, there are times Mm. that somebody could pop through for a minute and like have some visibility and be outside of that. But it's, it's always funny to me because like in queer spaces, I'm attractive and my clothes are attractive and then just switch the space. And that's not true. And that is so odd. Like, I don't, I don't understand why people just don't, um, see that like that if they're not reading it the lack of creativity and like maybe it's not for you like maybe I'm not supposed to absolutely is that what you you know what you're attempting to do what is the what's your sort of desire in bringing focus to this area so I think that I just want lesbian history to have a bit of a moment in the sun because like you were saying there's never been that real celebration and platforming of I think lesbians now and in history within a wider culture like we might have our moments but it's never been a general thing and part of that is that I want as a fashion historian and coming from a fashion history background um I want to bring that into the fashion history world I also want to from like a, a, a more queer studies, LGBT perspective, I want lesbians to have more of a focus in that because historically queer studies and LGBT history has focused more on gay men, which also should be having um, more focus on them. But that doesn't mean that lesbians shouldn't also be having a focus as with any other member of the LGBTQ community. But I also want to have a space where I'm talking about lesbian history. I'm really highlighting lesbian history and why it matters and why the clothes within that matter. But as with a perspective that's very inclusive, because there's so much of lesbian theory, I think, and lesbian, I think the lesbian 
representation or the representation of the lesbian community at the moment seems very exclusive. Um, it seems trans exclusive to a lot of people. But the truth is that for most lesbians now and in the past, that hasn't been the case. It's been a very inclusive community and space. Um, so I want to come at the work I'm doing with an actively inclusive mindset while still focusing on lesbians. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, even just using the word lesbian, like having that be the word that you're choosing versus queer. And it's it's tough yeah. because at least I know it's tough for me. It's like I identify with multiple words there. Like I, I actually also identify with gay. Like I also identify with gay. That makes sense to me. I identify with lesbian. That makes sense to me. And I identify with queer. That That, that makes sense to me. I do think that in the communities that I'm a part of, I guess it is a bummer to me that like this, the stupidity <laughs> and um, the yeah. ignorance and arrogance of some people has like taken away the power of a word like that, because I think it's a, mm. it's like a word that I avoided using for a really long time about myself because I it had so much stigma mm -hmm. that I would use gay. Um, and then when I, yeah, me too. Really? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And then when I got over that and I, it felt like exciting to use this word that more specifically talked about a history and community that I feel a part of. And um, then the lesbians, like, like, for instance, there's like a non-commercial pride alternative here that's called Dyke Day. That's like, it's, it's also where in the people I know, it's like also where non-binary and trans folks would go as opposed to like the pride parade that's in West Hollywood. Like that's mostly for cis dudes. And yeah, it's just called Dyke Day. I also love that it's called Dyke Day. Um, but the meaning of it is like Dyke Plus, you know, um, mm. you know, anybody that feels that they want to be a part of this community. And I, anyway, I think it's a complicated moment. Yeah. I mean, within, within history, lesbian community has always included trans people, bi people, pan people, mm -hmm. because it's the the parts of us that we are oppressed and excluded for that are the things that bring us together. So, you know, it's it's hard to to go. Oh, it's just lesbian history because while it is a lesbian history, there are always other people involved in that, and that's the same with our communities now. With, yes, like you were saying, Dyke Day with the, the word Dyke, like. Yeah, it's a lesbian term, but that doesn't mean that only lesbians have ever used it because there are other people who have been oppressed for the same reasons. 